Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Break a leg. Have a good show. Good afternoon, everyone. And what an afternoon. The January 6th committee has spoken. And uh, while we've been told for the last couple days uh, that they would be making criminal referrals, it's still pretty stunning to hear them do it. They have made criminal referrals for Donald Trump, John Eastman, and others. We'll talk about that in a minute, uh, putting a sort of Damocles over the heads of Oh, Rudy Giuliani, for example, and a few others who may want to go running to the Department of Justice to talk rather than uh, face some direct criminal prosecution. They've also named five Republican congressmen for refusing to comply with their own subpoenas. That's a who's who of MAGA Republicans list for you. Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan... Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Andy Biggs of Arizona. Come on, it'd be pretty fun for us. Fun is not the word. Satisfying to see them brought to justice as well, wouldn't it? So we're going to talk about that in our first hour. We have uh, Jonah Minkoff-Zern joining us in just a minute or so. He's the co-director of Public Citizens Democracy Campaign, and he has led those of us at Indivisible Chicago and across the country in fighting for justice because nobody is above the law. And uh, his work has been an inspiration to all of us. We'll talk to him about what work lies ahead now that the January 6th committee has made its announcement. And then we'll focus on the holiday season because... You know, we're going to be at family gatherings, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's gatherings, and you know um, that crazy uncle, cousin, or sibling in some of our cases is going to want to talk about the January 6th committee as fake and bad um, bad facts, and they have their own facts, and they're going to try to bait us into argument over these holiday meals. And uh, we're going to talk to Perry Kareem, who is from the Center for Conflict Resolution, and she's going to help us navigate those difficult conversations ahead. Our 3 o'clock hour is about the Chicago Police District elections. I'm sure those in our audience know that this is happening, but it's happening for the first time. It's a big step toward the kind of police accountability that many of us have uh, fought for here in Chicago, and we'll be talking uh, about those with a reporter from Chicago Reader, Kelly Garcia, and Frank Chapman of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, who has really been a leader in this movement for police accountability here in Chicago. Uh, finally, in the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about people in our community who are having are struggling to have uh, peaceful holidays with their family, people who have recently been incarcerated, trying to re-enter to the community, can't get good jobs, can't support their families, and uh, we'll be talking to representatives of two groups who are helping make happy holidays and more successful lives in the broader sense uh, for folks in these communities. Uh, Sister Donna Liate from the Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, and Joby Cates, the Executive Director and Founder of Restore Justice. These are organizations that work um, on the front lines of the fight to bring equity to all of our communities. They're truly an inspiration. They can use your help 
If you haven't done all your year-end donations, we'll tell you how to help these groups and more uh, when we get to that. But let's get started with the issue that I know we all want to talk about, the referrals from the January 6th committee. I will welcome Jonah Minkoff-Cern from Public Citizens Democracy Campaign. Jonah, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, as I said earlier, we were told in advance pretty much what would happen, and it sp came out uh, as predicted. With maybe more details, though, the criminal referrals are for obstructing an official procedure of Congress, conspiring to defraud the United States, making false statements to the federal government, and aiding and assisting an insurrection. Um, those are pretty serious charges, and I love how they said these are criminal referrals of Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others. Well, Eastman and Trump were the lead players here, and Eastman, too bad for him, is on record uh, as having said he knew this was illegal. Others say Trump told them they, that he knew um, it was and didn't care about that either. What do you think this and others point is about, Jonah? What I... Uh, um, well, I guess we'll see, and we'll see as the, the full report comes out. I think... Um, you know, what's important to note is that this is not just about Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is at the center of this, but that the MAGA Republicans continue to operate and continue to operate regardless of Donald Trump. I, I mean, we look at Lake in, uh, in Arizona calling for the arrest of the election officials in Maricopa County over the weekend. Um, they continue to be dangerous threats to our democracy. And I think that's a really important point to note as we look at the outcomes of, of the uh, of this year and a half, very powerful, well thought out investigation um, into what happened um, leading up to and on January 6th and what continues to happen to threaten our democracy. And there's work to do um, on the ground in the streets by those of us who are um, actively trying to keep this at the forefront. And there's work to do in Congress. Uh, also, let's let's separate those. First of all, what are you advocating we do in our communities? So I I think we need to you know this is a legal proceeding, but it's also a political one, um, and the Justice Department. You know I know I'm sure wants to move forward on these charges, and I think is weighing the political ramifications of doing so. Like no one wants to move towards justice and at the same time empower uh, a, a dangerous president and a dangerous movement. So it needs to be clear that there is a movement in the streets calling for justice. So we know that Trump and MAGA allies plan promoted for plan promoted and paid for a violent criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election that they knew they lost. We know that they illegally pressured Vice President Pence to unilaterally overturn the election. We know that they illegally pressured state legislators and election workers to overturn the election. And the list goes on. They sent this, this armed mob to the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And they are going to continue to take action like this unless it's unless there's an ongoing clear political message and a clear message in the street 
that people are not accepting this. And, you know, we rejected them in the elections this November, uh, but they are in charge of the House right now, right? They are starting these fraudulent investigations in the House. And it's that movement in the street and that movement in the ballot boxes that needs to continue to persist to address them. So on January 6th, we're taking action around the country uh, with a message, our freedoms, our vote, um, showing that that they want to take power because they want to take away our freedoms. So they want to take away our freedom to vote. They want to take our, our reproductive rights. They want to take away our Medicare, our Social Security, our ability to address gun violence, our ability to take action on climate. All of these things are, are the reasons that they are trying to take power and seize power illegally. Um, and it's up to us to, to take action and continue to take action the way we have um, over the last six years and beyond uh, to address this and to stop. There, the election was resoundingly clear about this, as you said, that we were clear, voters around the country were clear, whether Carrie Lake wants to accept the result or not, uh, they were clear that uh, perhaps some coming late to the realization that when you say uh, you want to determine as an elected official the result of an election, my vote won't count. And that suddenly was a wake-up call. I think they hit it hard enough that people uh, voting around the country pushed back and said they will not want the result of an election to be overturned by political powers or elected officials. Uh, and hopefully we can continue to send that message in ongoing elections as they happen around the country. There, there's also some work for Congress to do. It does not look like there will be any action on the Electoral Count Act in these waning days, does it? You know, I'm not sure. I, I, uh, my information was saying positive things up until a few days ago, so I haven't heard anything new today. Um, I was hoping, um, I, I guess I'm still hopeful that there will be, but you may be hearing uh, that there's there's not action on that. It's definitely necessary and significant. Um, you know, I I think we're we definitely need action by Congress, and we need more than just the Electoral College Act. We need to pass the HR one, the For the People Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, all the different iterations that it's taken, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, uh, to address these deeper threats to our democracy that that exists through. Uh, attacks on our freedom to vote that are taking place in state houses where where they're passing bills. And like in Texas, there are already dozens of bills that they've introduced uh, for this coming session uh, to further suppress our votes and to make it hard for us to vote, uh, to place barriers. Um, you know, places like D.C., where they are still not able to vote and don't have representation. Um, it's it's very important that we continue to act uh, and also to address gerrymandering, for example, where, where um, had uh, the Freedom to Vote Act passed, had there been an end to the extraordinary gerrymandering that's taking place, uh, Democrats would, ha- would have control of the House right now. Uh, that, you know, that made the difference. Um, so we have to continue to fight for these broad reforms as well as the immediate reform of the Electoral College Act, 
to, to place clear barriers against another action uh, like this. But really, this is a movement in the streets, and, that, and it continues to be a movement in the streets where we've been successful, where we've mobilized in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and it's our voices where we write letters to the editor, where we speak out. Um, and the really powerful work of this bipartisan commission and, and the you know, hundreds of thousands of pages of documents that they looked at, the more than a thousand witnesses that they interviewed, uh, you know, the career prosecutors who are part of this process. People on, on all levels have been acting and taking action um, and working tirelessly to hold them to account. Um, and I think, you know, there's a temptation to think, well, we, we won some of these elections in November um, or democracy won these elections in November. So now is the time where we can rest. And I think it's very important that, that we take a breath and, and rest and take care of ourselves when we need to. But it's also really important that we know that their threat is real, know that the Republican controlled House is, is a real threat to our democracy um, and that they're not going away and, and that they're regrouping and, and planning and organizing. And it's up to us to, to continue to act to stop them. You mentioned letters to the editor. I have been fond of the tool that Common Cause provides, and folks who are unsure of how to write a letter or where to send it, you can go to commoncause.org, and they will help you um, write letters to your local papers. Um, and if you do it in the Chicago area, you won't get the Tribune and Sun-Times, but you might get the Hyde Park Herald or uh, Evanston Roundtable or some other local paper um, where you could really have more impact. Uh, it, it matters when we speak out. It matters when we are in the streets. Indivisible Chicago is not organizing a January 6th event this year, um, but many of you came out with us last year in the absolute bitter cold. Um, to be clear uh, about that date and what it means to us, and I don't know if there's any others in the Chicago area. Jonah, do you know? Um, I... Uh not that I'm aware of, uh, but, you know, it's not too late for people to post their own events at ourfreedomsourvote.com um, and and look around the country for others and share it with friends. Um, and I think that, you know, as you said, we have to act in our own way and in our own time and, and take breaks when we need to and continue to, to struggle on here. Um, you know, another great resource that's coming out is this powerful graphic novel that we've been working with the creators of and, and on January 6th, it talks about what would have happened had January 6th been successful, had their insurrection been successful. Basically, this moment where had the mob turned left instead of right, um, and had they gone and hung Mike Pence as they intended and, and had they uh, taken power through their violence, what the country would have looked like. And it looks at people afterwards organizing uh, to reclaim democracy and, and what that democracy would look like in their eyes. Um, so it really... Is that, it, it, is that sorry, available yeah. yet, the graphic novel? It's going to be released uh, online around January 6th and then just briefly afterwards in uh, where you can order it. Uh, so we'll, uh, I'll... I'll uh, try to get you the information uh, in the in a minute about about what the website is where one can order it from and it's a very uh, powerful resource and and it's I think it's it's important to note that there are people thinking on all levels of how we can get our message out and this is a, a fantastic example of that 
Yeah, that's a really interesting approach um, to find different ways to reach different audiences. Um, I look forward to that, and you can dig up the website and how we can order it. What's it called? Um, it's called January 6th, uh, What Would Have Happened Had the, uh, had the Instruction Succeeded, um, I believe. I'm getting it for you in a second. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, That's all right. That's uh, fresh news. You heard it here first, as we say. That's for sure. Um, I, You know, people get discouraged. Uh, we're all worn out. There's no doubt about that, that we've been fighting for justice and fighting MAGA Republicans and Trump um, now for more years than we thought it was going to stretch out. And it's certainly not over, as you said. This this coming year with Congress, with the House under MAGA control, um, is going to be tough. What words of encouragement do you have? We've had a lot of success. And maybe going through the successes that we've had uh, is one way to encourage people. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You know, we have to, I, I think there, there, we have to be balanced. We have to not think the fear is, that the danger is gone. And that really is important that we see the threat that they still represent. Um, and, and not just in Trump. I think that's important in DeSantis and in, uh, the leadership of the new house and in people like Kerry Lake, um, and their, and the movement around them. Um, that they haven't stopped and that they continue to fight and believe that, that and have no remorse for any of the things they've done. Um, and at the same time, we have to celebrate, you know, that, that Trump wasn't reelected, that uh, he didn't do many of the things that he had intended to do to our democracy or would have done to our nation and really be proud that it was our movement who prevent, that prevented you know, much of the destruction of our democracy that they really would have inflicted. Um, and the movement around, you know, for example, against the attacks on our freedom uh, to choose and how that has taken shape on the ballot and in the streets. Um, and again and again, people are fighting back effectively um, against their attacks on our freedoms. Um, so we have to really celebrate those things while, while not also feeling like we can stop. I, I think both of those things, even though we're tired. And I had a, we had a great opportunity. We did a, an event with Martin Luther King III, uh, who's also coming to D.C. for, for the January 6th event, um, and speaking with him about the long struggle, you know, the message of his father that the arc of the moral universe is long, uh, but it bends towards justice, um, and really recognizing that that our struggle is a long one, and we have to be ready for that and, and stand strong in that. Right, right. There's still a lot of work to do, but we have been successful. It's no uh, small accomplishment to have elected Joe Biden, and the successes that he and Congress uh, were able to achieve, uh, mostly in this past year, um, but signing the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, improving health care for veterans, the CHIPS Act, uh, which will help. Uh, put some good-paying jobs out there and help begin the fight uh, or enhance the fight uh, for climate reform. Gun violence, the most significant gun violence reduction legislation to pass Congress in 30 years, improved um, resources for COVID, and on and on and on. So um, when you talk about what things could have been uh, like, I guess your book is sort of like It's a Wonderful Life, the Democracy Edition. 
but certainly all yeah, these I mean, things that, wouldn't have happened. Absolutely, absolutely, and, I, and really, you know, I think Biden really has done some has has led some really progressive reforms, um, and uh, you, you know, and continues to be a leader in that regard. Um, and you know, one thing we're working with him right now to try to do is to have an executive order to require that federal contracts that contractors disclose their campaign contributions, um, something that we've been working at for a while. And it really, the power of money in our political pro- process, I think we need to, to remember some of the roots of why Trump was able to gain power in people's disillusionment in a system that they felt didn't represent them, which is a real disillusionment and, and calling for action on money and politics um, on a state level, on a national level is very important, um, including this federal contractor executive order so we can see who's giving the money to influence our elections, um, but also addressing it on a state level like here in New York where I am, we just implemented our small donor matching public financing system to start to push back on the influence of big money. Um, so we, uh, we can do many powerful things on a state and local level, um, especially in the next two years where we're not going to be able to pass the federal legislation that we envision. We can be having those struggles and winning those things and building a movement on a local and state level. And that's no small point because that is actually what the MAGA Republicans did, right? Starting with the Tea Party, they, they did this, sadly, 20, 30 years ago when we weren't paying attention. Um, and that's how they ended up with the gerrymandered maps across the border from us in Wisconsin and elsewhere. And um, we are rather belatedly focusing on our states here in Illinois, the uh, blue oasis in the center of the country. We're on the verge of passing an assault weapons ban, we hope. There were committee hearings this week, and I know a lot of our folks sent witness slips in and, uh, and advocating for this to pass, and we're hoping there can be action on that before the end of the year. We can do things here in Illinois, continue to be an, an oasis uh, for women who are seeking access to abortion, um, for immigrants that are being sent to us from Texas, and elsewhere, um, and we are welcoming as a welcoming city. So um, you're right, on the state level, uh, we can do a lot. But we do need to keep our eyes on Congress and keep speaking out. And you've given us a lot of national leadership on that, and uh, we appreciate it. I want to go back to the uh, January 6th committee. People say it's largely symbolic in that they're just making a suggestion to the Department of Justice, of course, the Department of Justice doing their own investigation and making their own uh, indictments should they choose to do that. But let's talk about this even in terms of its symbolic impact. There's something very satisfying to those of us who have been fighting this fight for so many years. How do you feel yourself knowing that these referrals are being made and that uh, Trump, Eastman, and others are being called out for what they did in such a specific way. I mean, I think we need to recognize the the power of this committee and the power, I, I, both the power of our movements that's made this possible. Right? I think that, that any action here is a legal action, but it's also a political one, and it's a response to the movement of the people. Um, and, and, our, and we were 
responded to them, but I think the the outcome of the election showed that people were watching and understood the actions of the committee and understood the significance of the threat of MAGA Republicans. Um, and yes, I think we're we're seeing a committee that uh, we're seeing vindication in some ways in, in a small step today, or not? I guess not a small step, a historic step. Um, and uh, we need to amplify that and celebrate that. The hashtag Jan Six Justice is being used, um, and it, now is a great time for everyone to go out on social media and amplify those messages today. Uh, make sure people are thinking about it and talking about it, understanding the significance. And that really is going to influence how fast and and how significantly the Justice Department acts. We need to understand that it, that it's a legal body, but it's also a political one, and that it really will respond to our movement. And and uh, and yes, we should celebrate. I mean, it's really important that we celebrate mm-hmm. our victories. Today, today is a victory, and and we should all take a breath and and uh, and and recognize that and celebrate together. Absolutely. And and I know you all have been doing such amazing work there, Marge, in, in, in building a movement and all the time out in the streets and doing powerful events and writing letters and having meetings and, and organizing so effectively and also reaching out to other states and, and supporting them in their elections and, and those kind of things. Well, we're pretty proud. We had some successes uh, this last election, that's for sure. Thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it. But you're right. Today is a good day. This is definitely putting more pressure on Trump and others. I just love that and others uh, phrase because, like, you know who you are. Uh, it's going to make people feel very squirmy and uncomfortable, um, and they should be. And it gives the Department of Justice support, as does our activism. I think that's a really important point to underscore, is that if they feel the national mood is opposed to, uh, to indictments, they'll find a reason not to do it. But if they feel compelled to do so by the American people, that's our job to make them feel that way and to make sure they follow through. Um, Jonah, I appreciate your time. Jonah Minkoff-Cern is a co-director of Public Citizens Democracy Campaign, and he has joined us today to tell us about all the work that's happening in the streets. You can find more information at Public Citizen, and uh, if you don't have the link for that graphic novel, I'll bet it's on your website, publiccitizen.org, uh, before too long. Absolutely. It's 16comics.com is the link, 16comics.com. And for the nationwide action, it's ourfreedomsourvote.com. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time, and I promised you you'd get to your 2.30 meeting, and you're only a minute late. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. I'm so grateful to join you. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. You are listening to The Joan Esposito Show. Marge Halpern is your host this afternoon, and I'll be back in a couple minutes with some advice with a guest who will give you advice on how to talk about this January 6th commission and their findings and uh, their charges against President Trump with family members who might not have the same progressive point of view as you. We are live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. 
Good afternoon. We are talking about the January 6th committee and their uh, final meeting before adjournment this afternoon and the referrals they're sending to the Department of Justice. Uh, We've gone through what those referrals are and how our activism can really help goad our, let's say, support the Department of Justice into doing the right thing and following up on those referrals. But meanwhile, we're all heading into the holidays, right? So who will you be meeting in the coming week at uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's gatherings who will not share our view of the January 6th committee? You know somebody who's going to corner you at the dinner table or over the cocktail bar with the um, usual kind of MAGA statements that say it's a phony committee, it's... uh, Uh, unselect committee or whatever the phrases Trump has, and how are you going to answer them? You are worried about that? Well, don't worry, because we have an expert on the line now. Perry Karim, who is the training director at the Center for Conflict Resolution, knows how to handle difficult conversations like this, and she's going to give us some advice. Hi, Perry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, March. Uh, so uh, we, uh, most of us have some folks in our family gatherings or holiday parties that we might be attending who are going to corner us knowing our progressive bent and uh, complain about the committee, complain about the injustice, maybe chant stop the steal because that hasn't gone out of style for some folks. Uh, how do we prepare for those encounters? Yeah, I, I think that this is a really important topic, especially uh, right now uh, in 2022 today, after after all the things that we've seen and all the things that we've been through. And, you know, I think it all comes back to remembering why we gather. Why why are we attending these parties? Why are we seeing the people that we're seeing and, and uh, visiting the people that we're visiting? And, and I think, you know, really connecting with your why can help you navigate these difficult interactions. You know, there are so many reasons why people gather at the holidays, and it's not just because of a date on the calendar. Uh, We gather so we can see people that we love. We gather for connection, uh, connection for ourselves or facilitating connection for others, like, you know, grandchildren and grandparents together. Uh, We gather for celebration, holidays, milestones, life changes, relationships. Uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, we also gather out of obligation, whether it be a work commitment or visiting in-laws or because uh, our relationship, uh, you know, gives us financial support, we feel obligated to, to attend those gatherings. Um, but if we can forefront that why, forefront our motivation, it can help us make better decisions uh, and enforce our boundaries better in the holidays. Yeah, a few of us go to these events so we can engage in um Argument. That's for sure. I want to say, though, some of our folks may have specific concerns or questions or uh, specific circumstances they'd like help with. This is your chance to get some free advice uh, from an expert. You can call us at 773-763-WCPT, or if you need the actual numbers, 773-763-9278, and you can talk directly to Perry about the family gatherings that have you most worried as we approach the last week of our holiday season. Um, And while folks are thinking about that and getting ready to call, um, I would like to say there's, I have read some conflicting ideas about 
what to actually say. Sometimes uh, the advice is to deflect and move to something else. Sometimes people say you're okay stating your point, then deflecting. What exactly should we say if confronted by someone with these MAGA quotes? You know, I think, you know, whether or not you, you state that point or, or you just deflect, it kind of depends on who you're talking to, who's observing the conversation, and how important the issue is to you. Um, if it's something that's, you know, deep to the core of your identity, I, I think it, it can be really important to state your, your perspective, uh, your, li- your lived experience, your position uh, on the issues, especially if there are other people in your family that may be watching or if there's someone who may be personally affected by the comments that they're making. Um, it's important to really think about your safety in these situations, though. Um, if getting that word in is going to escalate the situation or create an unsafe environment for you or someone else emotionally, physically, et cetera, um, then I think it may be better to just deflect it and move on uh, to the next part of your celebration. Um, if it feels like it's a safe environment to, to make that statement, I'll I just remind folks that the, the data really shows that facts and data don't do much for changing people's minds. And uh, really, uh, especially when our beliefs are caught up in, in, you know, what we believe becomes who we are. And, and for a lot of people, politics have, has become part of our identities. Um, it's important that, that that one good line is probably not going to change their mind. It might feel good in the moment, but it may not be doing the most for your position. Well, that's a that's a good way to put it because, um, it, you know, there's something satisfying in telling somebody off or calling them on uh, uh, erroneous facts, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. And that goes back to your first statement about why are you there, what are your goals, and um, did you really come for an argument? Um, and if you didn't, what are the things you can say to deflect? Definitely, definitely. I, I, th- I think, you know, that in those interactions, what I always worry about is who's watching that is persuadable? Who of the family or the friend group is watching and they haven't made up their minds or isn't as closely a part of their identity? Or frankly, they're like many Americans who just aren't paying that much attention to what's going on in the day-to-day political environment. Um, you know, for them, they're going to remember the feeling of the interaction rather than the content. And, you know, if getting that, that word in is going to, you know, escalate the situation or or alienate those people, then I, I would feel, um, you know, th- those people are really the target audience here. They're the persuadable ones. The, the person who is, you know, diametrically opposed to you is probably not the one who's going to hear your good comeback and think, wow, that really, you know, I never thought of that before. You really got me there. <laughs> You're right. Those are the words we want to hear, but we never hear them. That is not the response we ever get if we're in an argument, that's for sure. We do have a caller on the line. Uh, Paul is calling in from Seattle, and he wants to talk about January 6th and the holidays. You're in the right place, I think. Paul, what's your question? Well, thank you. um, A few people chased me down to try and corner me uh, for many reasons, but uh, I think the last point was excellent, (laughs) is that every debate is for the benefit of those who are watching and listening. And so, you know, one thing is you can be really authentic and not repeat things that you've heard. I never do. Just just talk about things that you really think. 
And one of the things I'd like to suggest, that I kind of wanted to bring up with your previous guest, is that, you know, we keep hearing that the January 6th committee was one-sided and there was no cross-examination. Well, I've been pointing out to people that you don't have cross-examination unless there's a trial. So maybe we're really getting towards a kind of a, a universal, uh, everybody wants a trial. Because if, you want, if the evidence was so compelling that people on the right think that it requires cross-examination, that means we haven't even had anybody accused. That means you only cross-examine when there's an accused and there's a trier of fact. That means a jury. And that's when you start having cross-examination. So apparently everybody's itching for a cross-examination, which means they want a trial. And that's what I would point out. <laughs> then let's oh, have a well, trial. Okay. That would truly be the trial of the century, wouldn't it? That, the well, new century. You know what we're all you remember Robert uh, Mueller said in a Mueller report, um, it would be unfair to indict or suggest that the president should be indicted since we can't put a, a sitting president on trial. Well, it would be equally unfair if the evidence were so compelling that people are calling for cross-examination that we not have an indictment in a trial and allow this, this person who's, I don't know who it is, they obviously think there's enough evidence that someone should be accused or you wouldn't want to be defending with cross-examination. That's what I would say. Well, that's an interesting thread. Perry, I have a sense that people will feel like you've twisted their words a little bit. How do you think that'll play? Yeah, you know, that the, the skill that you're talking about, Paul, is one that we call reframing, which is that we are shifting the focus of the conversation. And we can sh shift the, the focus in a lot of ways, right? And so the, the way that you described is to say, you know, if, if that's what you really want, that's great. It sounds like that's what we both want. Uh, that, that this could this could uh, get a cross examination if we if it goes to trial, um, we can do that in a lot of different ways. But it's it's really moving the conversation in a different direction, and it may not work one hundred percent of the time. And, and frankly, Marge, if I could tell you what's going to work one hundred percent of the time, uh, I I think that uh, <laughs> that would be great. But I uh, unfortunately don't have that sort of magic. Uh, to, to be able to, to let you know that it's going to work 100% of the time. Um, but when we think about reframing, we can think about taking specific requests and making them more general. You know, I, I think that, you know, um, if, if somebody's making a specific demand about something, you can try to zoom out a little bit. You know, if they're making a comment about January 6th, make a, a comment in return that's about you know, judicial process in general or about due process, justice, et cetera, right? So sh zoom out a little bit. If somebody's making a complaint, mm. turn it into a request. Um, you know, they're saying, well, I can't believe that this, you know, in, in this example, they might say something like, I can't believe this witch hunt is, is continuing. You might say something like, well, it sounds like you would like there to be a fair process, right? Uh, and mm. so you're sort of shifting the focus a little bit so that you can, uh, you know, sort of avoid the pitfalls and, and get the conversation going in a more productive direction. Yeah, that sounds like reflective, list, uh, reflective listening. That's what you're doing there. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's reflective listening, but it's, it's, it's also shifting the momentum, right? It's not exactly what they're sure. saying back. It's zooming in or zooming out in, in a direction maybe slightly adjacent to where they were trying to go. Choosing safer ground, basically. Uh, 
Thank all you. thanks for joining us. And uh, Perry, if you can hang on a few minutes more with us, we're going to have to take a quick commercial break. If you have questions for Perry Kareem in the, um, from the Center for Conflict Resolution, as you prepare to join family that may not agree with you on all issues progressive, give us a call, 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT, where we are live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Welcome back. We're talking with Perry Kareem from the Center for Conflict Resolution about how to handle those difficult conversations, whether you're getting ready for Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's celebrations. There may be people around the table or around the room who want to challenge you in your progressive views. We're finding ways to respond that take down the temperature and uh, don't build it back up because, as Perry has already told us, that actually never works as a direct argument. If you have questions about your family gatherings and situations, give us a call, 773-763-9278, 763-WCPT, and we'll talk to Perry on the air. So, Perry, I had mentioned to you earlier that my day job is communications consulting, and a lot of what you say sounds like what I tell my clients when they're in a crisis communications mode. Um, That is to be open and honest, but not to be argumentative. But also, we tell folks to prepare. And I've seen uh, in coverage of this issue some phrases, some approaches, some things that you can say quite directly, sentences that tend to diffuse. Um, Do you recommend some of those talking points? Yeah, absolutely. I I think preparation is key. It can make the situation feel less threatening to you in the moment if you've already sort of thought through what your best situation might look like, what a worst case might look like, and and what your plan is. And I think even uh, in addition to thinking of sort of phrases that you can use in that moment, thinking of an exit strategy, I think, is equally as important. Uh, Remembering how you might be able to leave a situation, who are your allies at the event that you could go to for support during the event? Um, so preparation, not just on what we're going to say, but even how are we going to get out of the situation if things, you know, if we really truly get cornered and uh, aren't able to sort of, um, you know, think in the moment how to get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what about these ideas of re- finding a point of agreement um, so someone says, you know, this committee is um, so partisan and they didn't have any Republicans on the committee, which actually they did, but a lot of times people will tell you they did not. Um, it's very partisan, as Paul mentioned earlier. Um, what, what kind of, how do we diffuse that and still not let the lie stand? I think that is um, part of the challenge that a lot of us face, is to... So um, you, you hate to just let that lie stand for yourself and for the audience that is listening in the room. You know, I think you can correct points like that very quickly and say, you know, actually, these are the people who are Republican on the committee or 
you know, actually it, it was on this day or this much evidence or, you know, what it is and move on from there. I, I think, you know, debating the facts, um, is, it, you know, at a holiday party is probably not going to get you very far, especially with somebody who may be very entrenched in different uh, facts, right, or different perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. Points of agreement are actually very, very helpful in conflict because they, first of all, make you look like a more reasonable person, right? It's not just everything that you say is wrong. But I agree with you on certain points, and there's areas where we disagree. Um, so anything that you can find that you agree with, great. If you don't, if you can't find something that you agree with, <laughs> then don't agree with it. Uh, anything that comes off mm-hmm. as disingenuous. Um, showing gratitude can be really helpful if you mean it, right? So grateful that you are caring about this issue. I'm grateful that you want to talk to me and you know we don't agree on this. So I'm really grateful that you're looking for a different perspective. Um, you know, if you if you have those things that, that you are grateful, share them because I think that what tends to happen is it becomes me versus you. Uh, and then it becomes about power control and who's going to win versus the issues that are on the table. And so as much as we can make it a, a joint conversation, a joint process, uh, you know, a joint problem that we're trying to, you know, work through together, respectful curiosity is, is a real key in these types of situations. Um, try, to, try to find out where this person is coming from and separate the person from the problem. When it comes to these issues in particular, it can be so easy to think it's you. You're the one... <laughs> who, you know, uh, is the symbol of all of these problems that I see in the world. And when we do that, we tend to erase the person who's standing in front of us, and it makes it so much easier to other them, to talk to them in ways that we wouldn't talk to someone that that we were really, you know, honoring who they are. And so as much as you can sort of connect with them on a people-to-people level and try to understand who they are, that, that can actually get you usually in a better place. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really key point. Look for the things you share as family. And, uh, and, you know, that gets me back to your original point about remembering your why. You come to these events not to argue, but you come uh, to be near family. You come to support mom or grandma or to see the children, grandchildren, or whatever the things are. How do you... But you, I, I'm not sure you're suggesting to say that directly. It's a little sanctimonious to respond to somebody and say, well, I'm just here because mom deserves a good holiday. I didn't come here to argue with you. I, I, I'm pretty sure you're not suggesting we do that. It's more of an inner conversation. Is that it? With, with anything, tone really matters, right? And, and coming at it, I, I think that... You know, you could share some of that. You know, I, I think it's maybe important to both of us that we give mom a really good holiday. And you and I could go at it about this topic for hours and hours and hours. But I'm not sure everyone would enjoy that. And maybe there's a time in the future that you and I could connect about this. But I'm not sure that right here is, is the best place for us to get very far. Right? Um, <laughs> And, and I think yeah. you know, as much as you can get to a place where, where the, the, you know, the, whatever that little bit of ground that you can agree on, I, I think can be really good. Where, where it becomes really hard is when we use our why as a way to show that we are more, you know, ethical, moral, <laughs> better than the other person. <laughs> I'm really connected. You know, I'm just here for mom and I'm not here for this, you know. But I, I think that understanding 
what is my why and what are the things that I can do to connect more to that why? And what are the things that are going to push me further away from it? And try to engage more in the things that will. If I'm here because I really want my, my kids to have a great time, you know, with their grandparents, um, then I might say, you know, I, I would love to continue this conversation. I just really need to make sure that, you know, little Betty and, uh, and grandma are, uh, you know, getting some time together. Let me make sure that she's not playing video games, <laughs> you know, and, and give yourself <laughs> sort of an out to connect. So I, I, I think transparency is okay. You know, being sanctimonious, as you said, is probably going to inflame the situation or make somebody feel like they're being brushed off. You know, they right. ultimately they want to be heard, right? They, they've got their talking points. They've got their, um, you know, little scripts that they want to share, their good one-liners that they're working on uh, in the other direction. And, you know, what we want to do is, is make sure that we're not, you know, neglecting the person who's there, but stepping away from those types of interactions because that's probably not your why. And if your why is really to get that good one on your hands, then set it up for success, right? Um, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you know there, there may be a reason why you want to have that, that big that big moment, but um, it's, in that case, it's probably not just like in the corner, right? Right, right. I'm going to um, take one minute. We have one more caller on the line. Jim, we have literally 60 seconds. What's your question for oh, yeah. Perry? Uh, just real quick. The people that are really having a problem are the uh, newly elected uh, House of Representatives. The Republicans can't come to any consensus, it seems like. They're all, they all, they're all behind Trump, that's for sure. But they don't want McCarthy. There's no doubt about that. They'd love to have Jordan because he's uh, a really a nut case. And they're having a real problem. I was just ears dropping and, and their uh, powwow down there. And they don't want McCarthy. Uh, they, uh, they're really having a real problem there. So I think the Democrats are much more cohesive. And uh, I just hope you have a Merry Christmas and thanks a million. I'm pretty sure. Oh, we lost him. And I'm pretty sure we don't want to uh, uh, confront our Republican relatives with that fact. But... There's a little satisfaction in that for us as well. I'm also pretty sure, Perry, that your family doesn't uh, take you on in an argument very often, do they? And we really enjoy, you know, the the back and forth. And I think that a spirited debate is is always uh, welcome and and it's enjoyable for Betty, but. Usually a spirited debate um, is, is something that uh, is, is for the people in the debate, and, and sometimes it's not as enjoyable for those watching. So uh, I, I always try to remember that, but we do enjoy a good back and forth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but a civil one. I'm sure it doesn't get out of hand. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been talking with Perry Kareem. She's the training director at the Center for Conflict Resolution here in Chicago and given us some good advice on how to take on those difficult conversations. You can find the, I didn't ask you in advance, Center for Conflict Resolution. Um, dot, what is your website? www.ccrchicago.org. Great. That's where to find you. And uh, you know where to find us if you want to continue to join our conversation, 773-763-9278. You can follow me on Twitter, Mastodon, and Post now, because we don't know where to go, at Marge Helperin, M-A-R-J, 
H-A-L-P-E-R-I-N. Or look for IndivisibleChicago.com and catch up with the work we're doing there. And you can follow that organization at IndivisibleShy on all three of those sites as well. We are here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Alperin. It's time to talk about the municipal elections. We have elections for mayor. Everybody knows that. But do you know that for the first time we are also electing representatives to new police districts? This is part of the police accountability process that uh, many activists fought for and put in place. And it's beginning with these elections where you can have local representatives having direct relationships with the police department, telling them what we need in communities and what we don't need in communities. And uh, to learn a little more about how it works, I have Kelly Garcia on the line. She's a reporter from the Chicago Reader and has written uh, and uh, done interviews that add a lot of clarity because it's a complex setup, isn't it, Kelly? It is, yeah. And I think a lot of people um, who are interested in running for these positions themselves are still figuring out what these police district councils are about. So we're all learning as we go. Yeah. So tell us how it works. I know we can elect three members in each district to the police council. Um, I also know that my district in the South Loop is one of three around the city that only has two candidates on the ballot. So how is this all going to work? Yeah, absolutely. So Chicagoans will see a new office on their ballot come February, um, and it will be your, the police district council election. So each of the city's 22 police district councils, our police districts will have new councils. Um, and as you said, each of them will have three members. Um, so in total, that'll be about 60 candidates um, or 60 uh, members in each of the councils across the city. Um, so right now, we're seeing a huge drive of people who are interested in serving on the councils. Um, there's 122 candidates vying for the seat. Um, as you mentioned, um, there are a few districts where we're not seeing enough candidates running for the seat. Um, so we're actually going to have to wait for the mayor to make appointments to fill those seats. Um, but in other districts, for example, the ninth district, which is uh, closer to the south, south, southeast side, like Bridgeport, um, we're actually seeing like nine candidates running there. So we're seeing crowded wow. races across the city. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest uh, for people who um, are either, you know, pro, uh, you know, police or people who are, um, you know, actively trying to make changes to how our police department works. So, um, you know, I think there's people from all sides of the political spectrum um, running for these seats. So it'll be very interesting. But, um, you know, right now we're actually still waiting to see which candidates will actually make it on the ballot. Um, surprisingly, we had about a quarter of the candidates get their petitions challenged. So um, you had opponent, opponents basically challenging uh, other candidates from getting on the ballot. So we're still waiting to see um, who will actually make it on the ballot. It's exciting to think about real competition. Nine, I hadn't seen that. Nine candidates for three slots is exciting. What is it these candidates will be able to do once elected? How will these police districts, uh, uh, councils in each district, interact with the broader police department? 
Yeah, so they will act as a liaison between the police district and the community. So they're going to be responsible for holding monthly meetings between the community and the police, um, talking about ways to improve that relationship. Um, They're also going to be brainstorming other ways for um, addressing crises in their police districts. Um, What is, uh, you know, community policing going to look like? Um, they're also going to be nominating members to the citywide commission, um, which was a part of the other part of the ordinance um, that also passed the police district councils is you have the citywide commission. And so these police district members, they will be nominating members to that larger commission. And that larger commission really has more of the power, I would say. They're the ones who are going to be making recommendations to the budget. Um, hiring and firing police leadership, et cetera. And so I would argue that they're really going to have a say um, in who's leading these accountability efforts citywide. Um, but, yeah, generally speaking, you know, I think that um, there's going to be a lot of room for these new members to figure out what they want these councils to look like and do for their communities. Um, I'm guessing that what we're going to see after the election is a lot of people seeking input from their community about what they would like to see their councils do um, in, in, in these new terms. It's a balance of power still, isn't it, where the community is getting this district council that has some input, the mayor will end up appointing a couple of members, at least it sounds like. And then there's the citywide commission where the mayor holds the balance of appointees also, right? Yeah, so it's a collaborative effort. And I think that's something that I'm very interested in in watching um, because what we're going to see, what I'm anticipating we're going to see is a lot of deadlocks. Because as I mentioned, these police district council members, they're going to be in charge of also nominating members to that citywide commission, but it's not going to be mm-hmm. their sole decision. Um, the mayor is going to have to also agree with their nominations, and if she doesn't agree, those police district council members will have to come up with a new list of nominees for that citywide commission. Um, at the end, it's the city council who approves all the nominations. Um, but like I said, I mean, you know, it's really going to depend on who's the mayor. So I'm really interested to hear what mayoral candidates have to say about how they want to interact with police district councils and the citywide commission, because this is a collaborative effort, um, and it's going to have to require a lot of, um, you know, accountability on on everyone's part. That's a good point about the candidates for mayor. There's a lot of organizations working on uh, questionnaires right now and serve candidate surveys and forums. Uh, I'm with Indivisible Chicago. We're co-hosting with Chicago Women Take Action and a whole bunch of other women's groups for uh, January 14th forum, uh, which you can uh, find a link to sign up for on our website, indivisiblechicago.com. And we're working on questions and a survey. Um, What would you ask these candidates uh, about the police districts and the citywide commission? Yeah, so something I'd be curious to hear from mayoral candidates is, um, you know, how would they want community members, residents citywide, to um, to better understand the police budget? Um, something that I heard from a lot of candidates who were running is that the reason they're running is because they don't know how policing works in Chicago. Um, and I think that's because there's a lack of transparency, right? Um, and so, you know, that <laughs> we've seen that that was, um, you know, a, a, a big point in, in their life of campaign is, is bringing in the light. Um, and so I'd be curious to hear how many of our candidates want to 
um, increased transparency in the police department, talking about the police budget, um, talking about police leadership. Is that something that they're going to open up for um, for criticism from community residents, from people who are elected from the community? Because that's what we're going to be seeing, too, from these police district councils is people who um, are going to be holding our mayors accountable on decisions related to policing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm very curious about what they have to say about what they're going to make transparent um, and mm-hmm. who they want to be held accountable to. Um, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of people who um, arguing are, who are arguing for police reform and who, um, you know, want police abuse to stop. They're definitely they're going to be definitely raising a lot of questions in these police district councils, but we're also seeing a lot of candidates who are pro police, and they are going to have questions mm-hmm. about why you know there's a surge of, of police officers retiring, and so um, you know I think it's I have a lot of questions obviously, but very curious to hear from mayoral candidates about transparency and policing. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, both of those are good points. We will be talking to Frank Chapman of Carper um, at 3.30 after you've fully explained the system to us. He's going to talk about how you can distinguish between progressive candidates and the FOP candidates. So some of them are attempting to obfuscate their background, and some of them are very clear they're cops and they're going on the committee to beat cops. Well, former cops, because they have to have been out of the force for three years um, in order to be on these councils. But um, in terms of the transparency, I'm thinking about uh, a mayor in our not-distant past who operated under a system where a citywide commission uh, formulated differently, uh, made recommendations for police superintendent, and that mayor said, yeah, no, I'm going to choose a different person, not one of the ones you recommended. Is that even possible under the new system to choose uh, candidates to the citywide commission that were not recommended by the district councils? Yeah, no, good good question. Um, it's not going to be because, it, it, again, um, the mayor is only going to be able to appoint candidates that are nominated by the members of the police district council. And there's going to be a, a specific committee um, that includes members from each of the police district councils because, again, it's like 122 candidates running, right? So that's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of people who are filling the seats. Um, so there is going to be one committee that is focused on nominations. Um, but, again, the mayor is not going to be able to, uh, you know, appoint anyone outside of that list. Um, but, you know, you make a really good point, and it's something that I've been hearing a lot about, is that we've seen, you know, efforts like these before. We have COPA right now. We have a Civilian Office of Police Accountability. Right. Um, we've seen other different types of, of committees or, um, you know, different types of special groups focused on police accountability and, and police reform efforts. And um, I would say that, um, you know, the police district councils and, and this commission is, is a watered-down water down version of what um, a lot of the activists originally wanted, and I'm sure Frank Chapman will, will talk about that. But, um, you know, it's something that a lot of people have in the back of their minds is how is this any different from what we've had before? Um, and I think, again, that's why they were so specific on how nominations, like how we're actually going to get members elected and or appointed. Um, there's going to be a lot of, you know, shifting of rules probably as we, um, you know, do these new elections. But for now, it seems like they're trying to avoid any type of loopholes that the mayor has. Yeah, because um, this mayor and others have really uh, enjoyed exploiting loopholes when they want to do something different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, we're in this mode of distrust, I guess, um, current leadership and others. But it's a healthy distrust. I think that's the whole idea behind this accountability, isn't it? That there would be uh, checks and balances and a sharing of power over our policing system. Do you think this will achieve that? That's a good question. You know, I I think it will because one thing that I'm already noticing, which is it's a success, it's, um, it's a good outcome, is that we're already seeing a lot of people getting more engaged. Um, not just politically, but also in, in, in terms of understanding how um, policing works in Chicago. We have people who are who are wanting to become more engaged. Um, when I think of these police district councils, I think about local school councils um, in a way that was for parents and teachers and students to better understand how their school functions. And so I think um, I think that's how these police district councils can be a good thing. I think it does um, bring in more. Um, more input from community members. Um, it gives them more of a say. It gives them a seat at the table. Um, how far that input will actually make it, you know, I, I think that's something that we're going to need to keep watching. But I, I think that, you know, it's it's good that we're seeing such high levels of engagement on such a hyper-local level. Um, again, the fact that we're seeing nine candidates running for three seats in one police district it tells me that people really want to be more involved and they want to better understand how these things work so that they can relay that to their own community. Um, and, you know, I think in that sense, I would say that it, it is working, um, but we're going to have to keep watching and see what, what else happens. I like your analogy to local school councils. For one thing, I was one of the uh, school reform activists that helped write that bill and helped pass it. That was uh, one of my earlier activism activities here in Chicago. Um, But for another, I know from that experience that some local school councils have been more successful than others. And one thing that we didn't plan for with the local school councils uh, was training. So we found that people ran because they were committed to schools, but they really didn't have the tools they needed to for governance of the schools. I mean, it's a different role than the police districts, but I wonder if we should be thinking about training for the police councils uh, once they're elected. Is, mm-hmm. is there some system in place to make sure they have the tools they need to be successful? You know, I think the city of Chicago um, is trying to work on, on what a training could look like for, for a lot of candidates. But what I would argue is we shouldn't rely solely on that. I think that we're going to have to rely on um, the decades of experience that a lot of community activists have in their communities in trying to advance police reform and, and understand how policing works. I think we're going to have to see more community partnerships. Um, I would love to see how police district councils learn from from community activists, from community organizers who have been doing this work for years. Um, I agree. Governance is it's a full time job, right? Um, and yeah. you know, it's gonna it's gonna have to take um, a lot of patience and understanding from from residents to see how these um, to see how these uh, police district councils flourish. But um, really, I think that these members they're going to be learning a lot more from the people that they're serving. Um, <laughs> you know, if we look mm-hmm. on the Chicago website right now as it, as it relates to the police district councils, you know, they're still trying to explain what these councils are and how to run for them. Um, I don't see much yet about how they're <laughs> trained or, you know, how they're going to actually uh, operate, but, you know, once they're elected. But I think that that's something that 
um, again, it's going to be up to the to the new members to figure out what they how they want these councils to look like. Yes, and I totally agree with you. I would not rely on the police department or city hall to provide the adequate training. And when it was the local school councils when they were launched, we didn't um, get much support or didn't entirely want it from uh, Chicago Public Schools either. Uh, the organization I co-founded, Pure and others, did create training um, rapidly. We didn't plan it in advance, but it was clear uh, as the elections were taking place that it was necessary, and we pulled together some excellent training, I think, uh, but kind of at the last minute. So maybe that's a question for Frank Chapman as to what they're doing or planning to do to help the new council members uh, prepare to do their jobs and help them do them effectively. Because you're right, I wouldn't rely on the city to do that kind of training. Um, but it's exciting that there's 122 people who feel not only civic-minded but concerned about police community relations uh, enough to run for office and try to be a mm-hmm. part of it. It's exciting, right? Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see um, how that engagement plays out in other elections as well. I mean, these candidates, um, they're running in slates. They're running in support of other aldermanic and mayoral candidates. So it's nice to see that support um, from around the city for, for these new people seeking, seeking office and, and trying to understand what it's like being politically engaged. Um, and, and civically minded. So, yeah, it's very exciting. And it's, um, you know, <laughs> regardless, it's a win for, for people who, who desperately need and, and want to see more police reform here. Well, that's interesting. They're running in slates with all pneumatic candidates. So, that is another way to know um, the political positioning of the specific candidates. If you are comfortable with the all candidate, you trust them to recommend police district candidates, right? Sorry, I meant um, running in place with other uh, police district council candidates, um, which that's actually being challenged right now by the Chicago Board of Elections, so we're not even sure if that's allowed or um, what that means for other elections, but um, yeah, we are seeing slates, um, and and what I meant is is we're seeing police district council candidates um, running running with the support of other alternate candidates in their war. So, yeah, you're definitely going to, you know, easily see, you know, what their uh, political vision is um, by, who's, by who's supporting them and, and which alternate candidates they're running in support with. But, um, yeah, that's something that we're still waiting to figure out that's allowed. On what basis could they possibly object to candidates running on a slate? <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not much information yet about what um, the exact objection is, but from, from what I saw in the Daily Line, um, there's about a quarter of the candidates running for police district council that are being objected to, and, and part of the reason is because they're running in slate. Huh. That's mm-hmm. an established political process in this country. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Very interesting. I hadn't heard that yet. Well, it's a new territory for sure. It's taking us uh, in a more collaborative direction, as you said. Um, and to the extent that it is successful, we'll celebrate. And if it's not, what would be the avenue for making changes in the future? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, I think people should definitely be involved in, in the organizations that make this happen. Um, you know, I, I know Frank Chapman is going to be on, but um, groups like Chicago Alliance Against uh, Racism and Political Repression, um, you know, they've been working on, on getting more residents in, involved in how to, um, y- you know, 
make your bring your form into the police department and so um, I want to encourage people to, to check out other ways outside of the electoral system to get involved. Um, there's also other, you know, again, the police board still going to exist. You're still going to have COPA. Um, so there, there's going to be other ways and avenues for people to, to, to get involved in, in bringing more police accountability um, outside of these police district councils. But you can also attend those monthly meetings, right? Well, once, once we have these new mm-hmm. police district councils, um, they're going to need participation from residents. And so um, make sure that you are holding your members accountable. Make sure that they're being transparent about when those meetings are happening, um, publicizing that. Um, that's another really great way of getting involved is holding those, those police district council members accountable to their job. That's an important, very important point. Those community meetings matter. I, I know from the activism work that I have done that it doesn't take an army to show up at these meetings, you know, you, and especially at this level. If you have three people at a meeting, you're going to have a really strong voice because they aren't, they aren't attended by the masses, let's say. So yeah. if you and a couple of neighbors have a point of view, you really can make your voice heard. Uh, by showing up at these community-based meetings. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, too. Any final insight on how you think this is going to play out? Um, not not yet. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to pay attention to those three districts um, that have only two candidates running. Um, so that it's, it's looking like it's the um, first uh, central district. The six districts, um, Gresham on the south side, and then the 14th district, Palmer Square. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see um, who the mayor is going to be because they're going to be the ones appointing that, um, you know, filling that vacancy. Um, but also to see like how how that process is going to work. Um, again, the, the, the two members that are elected, once they are elected, they're going to be the ones making recommendations to fill the vacancy. And then they're going to have to be working with the mayor to fill it. So that's going to be the first glimpse into how that collaboration is going to work out. Um, so definitely keep an eye on that. But otherwise, yeah, we talked about it a lot. I think this was great. Well, thank you. You really have gotten a high level of expertise on a very complicated topic, but a very important one. So appreciate your time. And uh, again, we've been talking with Kelly Garcia, reporter for the Chicago Reader. You can find her uh, comments and coverage through thechicagoreader.com. And uh, coming up, we'll be talking with Frank Chapman from the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, who really has been a singular leader in this whole movement for police accountability. So if you have questions about the police district process, uh, how it's working in your community or citywide, you can give us a call and join the conversation at 773-763-9278. Kelly, thanks for joining us. We are, uh, this is Marge Halperin on the Joan Esposito Show, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Good afternoon. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about the new Chicago Police District elections. That's a new uh, entry that'll be on your municipal ballot. Um, municipal elections coming up really fast, as they always do, uh, end of February. Why is the date not popping in my mind? We'll ha- have it in a minute. But, uh, yeah, coming up 
soon. We're all focusing on the mayoral election, but it's also critical that we pay attention to these police district elections. This is our first chance to have a stronger voice in how the police department is managed and supervised and held accountable. And uh, one of the men who is responsible for the changes in the law is Frank Chapman. Frank, thanks for joining us. Frank is the educational director and field organizer for the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Carper has been the beacon that uh, the rest of us as activists in the community have looked to for guidance and leadership, and you have led us in a very strong direction. So I want to thank you for all your work and welcome you to the program. Thank you, Marge, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we spent the last 20 minutes or so talking to uh, Kelly Garcia from The Reader, understanding how the system works. Um, uh, So now I want to talk to you about the candidates. Tell us about the work you have done to uh, encourage, recruit, train, and support people, progressive people, who are running for these district seats. Well, as you said, when you open up the program, Marge, uh, this uh, this is something new in the uh, electoral history of uh, Chicago. Uh, this is the first time in the history of this city and of this nation that uh, people in our, in our communities who live in the police district are given the democratic option to say who polices their communities and how their communities are policed. So the candidates that, that emerged, uh, you know, really came out of a long-standing campaign of grassroots organizing, and these candidates are are are, 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 are people who have not ever held an elective office before, or people who are mainly working class. Uh, a lot of them are poor. Uh, they're, they're black and they're brown, and uh, they're also white working class. So this is what you have uh, in in terms of candidates in this city throughout this city. Uh, we have them on the north side, we have them on the west side, and we have them on the south side. And, uh, of course, the south side and the west side have, bared, have, have sort of bared the butt of uh, police uh, brutality and criminality and misconduct. Uh, so our organization, the Chicago Alliance, is putting a lot of focus in those areas. But also we're working on all sides of the city. And, and uh, we, we, we provide training for these candidates. Uh, we've been doing that since... Uh, August, we have uh, 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 printed petitions for them, have shown them how to conduct uh, a, a petition drive to get nominated for, for the ballot. And so on November the 28th, we had uh, 71 candidates to file. Uh, and most of those candidates, we managed to keep on the ballot. Uh, there, there was some frivolous, uh, 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 you know, charges that our, our petitions were not uh, adequate and so forth and so on, but most of those charges we've been able to, uh, to lay to rest. So uh, uh, we're going into this uh, uh, election on February the 28th with a lot of optimism, and we're also going to be doing a lot of grassroots organizing uh, going, uh, going forward. You know, we're going to be in every, in every police district organizing for people to uh, to take hold, to take this democratic opportunity and turn it into a real opportunity for our people so we can have some real accountability, real police accountability. 
That's exciting, and I know you've worked hard for this. So 71 of the 122 candidates have uh, come out of your organization and the work that you've done in the community. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah our organization and our movement. You know, the movement consists yes. of more than just the alliance, you know. It also consists of, uh, of the, uh, the grassroots, uh, uh, you know, uh, police accountability people, GAPA. Uh, it also consists of a, a, a number of unions like SEIU, Service Employees Union. It also mm-hmm. consists of a number of uh, grassroots community-based organizations like Soul on the South Side, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's a lot of, you know, indivisible and has been has also worked with us. So it's been a lot of uh, a, a lot of churches and a lot of community-based organizations working with us, like you know Trinity United Church of Christ, the Community Renewal Society, and that whole cavalcade of churches that they have with them, as well as temples, as well as the Muslim community, and also the Jewish community. So uh, this is truly a people's movement. I, I have seen, you know, I, I've been involved in this work for over 50 years, and I, and I have seen nothing like this since the Harold Washington campaign in this city. Well, that's a meaningful statement, <laughs> that, and it's exciting. And I, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I think that is exciting to think that the old coalition could come back together. And what better cause than police accountability? I mean, we all saw in the summer of 2020 how protests against police brutality resulted in more police brutality. And uh, I think that was a major motivator for many of us uh, to get involved, and this is an exciting outcome from that movement. Absolutely. um, So we talked about this with Kelly Garcia, about the balance of power that that this creates. So there's more community input, but there's still authority that rests uh, in the mayor's office. How The cynic would ask, how much input do you think the community will really have through this process? Do you think it'll be effective? Yeah, I do. What we have done, we have to first of all, in order for it to be effective, we have to be fully conscious and aware of what we've done. What we have done is that we have opened up up, up the door where we can we can have impact, uh, real impact on, 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 on policy making with regard to the policing in the city. And, 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 you know, we, for example, we have the power to hire and fire, uh, the, the person that's in charge of COPA, you know, civilian officer police accountability. That's the mm-hmm. investigative body. That's, that's, that's powerful. You know, we've never had anything like that before. We have the, we have the, uh, uh, uh the ability to, uh, 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 challenge any and every policy that the police is presently operating under that we, that we feel needs to be challenging. Like, for example, no no knocking, knocking, kicking people's doors in without warrants, racial profiling, mm-hmm. shooting unarmed people, particularly in the back when they're running, but shooting them, period. All of these, all of these are standing policies that are going on within the police department, and the only time that they uh, we even think about challenging them is when somebody is murdered, or somebody is tortured and sent to jail for something that they didn't do, or somebody's door is kicked in while they're taking a shower and they're forced to, to come out naked. Uh, mm. then, then, we, then, we, then we think about, wow, these policies need to be changed. Now we have the power to change them. 
Now we have the power to do something about it. And, 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 and power is like this here. Here's how it works. It works if you work it. So we, we have to use the, the, the authority that this statute gives us. We have to use the power that this, that this audience, I'm sorry, audience gives us to make sure that we're moving in the direction that we need to move in to hold the police accountable for what they do and what they don't do. It's going to be so, a, yeah, it's for wand. sure. It's not a magic wand. It's not. It's not like uh, you know the day after the election, everything is going to fall into place. Now we're talking about power, and, and and power concedes nothing without a struggle. And so everything that we've gotten so far, we have fought to get it. You know, we have fought to get it. We haven't got all that we fought for, but we have fought for all we got. So this, right. this struggle is not over. This struggle is just beginning. So what should folks who are not on the ballot do to support their new districts? Vote. <laughs> yeah. Right now. That's the first right thing. Right now is get out, get out and vote. Get out and vote. Get out and make sure that you vote for the person who you think in your district is the best candidate. You know, now up to this point, our, our alliance has had a, 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 a nonpartisan position in terms of the candidates. We've, put, we've moved up advance and put forward the candidates who we think really have the community interest at heart. But even though we've done that, who really is in control of this electoral process is the people who vote. And so it's got to be the people's choice. They, you you got to go out and vote for the candidate that you think is going to represent you uh, uh, effectively. And, and, and that's what elections are about. You know, it's about right. you know ele- electing who you who you who you who you choose, and so we're not we're not choosing anybody for anybody. You know, we're giving we're giving the candidates the ability to go out and get those votes for themselves. This is a self empowerment movement, and so we uh, we want democracy to work. You know, and and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Work. We're trying to manipulate it, and we're not trying to manipulate. It. The FOP, on the other hand, doesn't want it to work, so they are trying to manipulate it. You know, they're, they're trying to they're trying to throw, throw people into this race who do who do not believe in this ordinance, who fought against it tooth and nail, but now all of a sudden they want to become district council members, and they want to become district council members. You know, it's like it's kind of like what the Greeks did when they left the Trojan horse. They want to they they, they want to come in to destroy it. Mm-hmm. They're not sincere we, about making this work. Yeah, and they're pretty open and, open and above board about it, too. And we appreciate them for their honesty, because as long <laughs> as they're open and above board about it, we're going to win. Now, those who want to be moles and try to creep up on us, we're going to turn lights on, and they're going to be like cockroaches. They're going to run. So uh, so we, we, uh, we're we confident that we can win this because we got the people on our side, and we got the truth. Yep. I wouldn't argue with that in any way. I feel you you instill a lot of confidence. If you can stay with us a little bit longer, we have to take a commercial break. But if members of the audience have questions about the police council, uh, police district councils, uh, there's no better expert to ask them to than Frank Chapman. Give us a call at 773-763-9278. I'm Marge Halperin here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito. 
Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. We're talking about the Chicago Police District elections with a true expert, Frank Chapman from the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. If you're not familiar with Carper, please look them up. Uh, C-A-A-R-P-R dot com, I think is your website, right? Dot org, dot org. Dot org, okay, thanks. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of great information there uh, about the fight for police accountability. And uh, I urge you to check it out and learn more uh, about it. Um, And if you have questions about the police district councils, uh, you can call us, 773-763-9278. Frank, we do have a caller on the line, Gregory from Rogers Park. Go ahead. Good afternoon, sir and madam. My question is, can the elected police review board, I guess I should call it, or consulting board, uh, what is the official name of these boards so I refer to them properly? Chicago Police District Council. Sorry, Frank, go ahead. The members, the elected members and the appointed members of the Chicago District Councils actually direct by a majority vote if they get one for the captain of their police district to say tell the officers to use more of their police work directed towards say my issue which is trying to get the motors to learn how to see and yield to pedestrians in the thousands of plain crosswalks that we have that are not associated with stop signs or traffic lights because i grew up here in the 1960s and 70s and I finished growing up in the western states where they have the culture of seeing and yielding to pedestrians in a plain crosswalk. It would reduce the amount of jaywalking. So people would know when they go to the crosswalk, the waters would part, and they'd be able to get safe passage in their baby stroller or the jogger or whoever. And it is the state law that you're supposed to yield to pedestrians when they're presenting themselves in a plain crosswalk. Will the district councils be able to sort of tell through majority vote the captain what to do with his police powers more so or just make a suggestion? That's my question. Thank you so much. Well, sure. That was a great, great question. Well, the, the, the ordinance created local district councils in each police district power over local public safety issues. And, and what you raise is a public safety issue. Uh, these, these councils will be responsible for nominating a citywide commission that sets policy for the Chicago Police Department. So the way that citywide commission uh, is going to operate is based on what feedback they're getting, they're getting out of the community, what the citizens of the community are saying that they want. Uh, the district council people will be, will be your representative. You know, they will be representing you and, 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 and making sure that your concerns are addressed through the, uh, through the citywide commission your concerns are addressed and that when, when they set policy for the uh, Chicago Police Department, the door, the door, your, your concerns will be considered in that policy setting. So yes, absolutely they'll be able to address what, you, what you're raising. And that gets to a point that uh, Kelly Garcia raised earlier in this hour, which they will have community meetings and you're going to need to go. Uh, come to those meetings, tell 
your representatives what you want and talk to them about it and hold them accountable too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Greg. We have another caller in the line, Jack, who is from Arlington Heights, but I hope has a question relevant to our Chicago district councils. Maybe a little envious that we're setting it up. Jack, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, if I could ask a question, then hang up. Listen, I know you have calls, and I hope Joan is feeling better. Okay, for example, uh, would there would there be coordination and decentralizing on the city level, and even the state and the larger scale levels with policing? If I could, I know you have other callers. If I could just hang up and hear your answer, is that all right? Yes, that's fine. Thank you. How how will this scale up to issues that are handled by the state police, for example, or county sheriff? Well, I can't exactly tell you at this moment because this is uh, this is something entirely new to the uh, a city of policing. I mean, the system of policing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not exactly sure how that's going to happen, but let me just say this is that what happens at the at the local level will will certainly impact the uh, uh, the state and, and and ultimately the federal. But this is a this is sort of like an experiment in democracy. We we've never done it before, and so we don't know exactly how that's going to transpire. But I'm an optimist. I, I believe that. This, that uh, I believe that all issues are first, or at first local, and then they become global. You know, and I and I think that uh, uh, how we deal with this at the police district level is going to definitely impact how things are dealt with at the state and federal level later on. Right, and and the whole point of this grassroots movement is to start at the community level, right? So now we have a voice through the community councils um, that it it comes from our neighborhoods and from where we live and the folks that we elect will move it up the ladder uh, and we expect to have strength as issues come from the grassroots that's the experiment right yeah you know this is a you know he was talking about centralization decentralizing all that this is this is the best way to uh, to decentralize is to organize from the bottom up. You know, we're starting. We're starting in in, in, in your local community. You know, uh, we're talking about local public safety issues, uh, and 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 in, and in talking about them and taking action about them, we're sort of demanding that the rest of the system pay attention to them. Is there? Um, we raised this question with Kelly too. That we know that in the past there was a system through COPA, I guess, um, or the other acronym of Police Advisory Council, um, where the, the mayor was given uh, a list of superintendent candidates and decided not to choose any of them. It, what, are, what is the mechanism to hold the mayor and the police superintendent accountable to the direction that comes out of these councils? Well, the, the, the first step is that, that we that we that we took is that once these district councils nominate a citywide commission uh, 
the mayor has to pick from that has to pick from those nominations. For example, the the district councils combined, all twenty two of them, can uh, uh, nominate fourteen people to be on the citywide district council. The mayor has to pick seven of those fourteen. Uh, whoever the mayor is, they cannot reject the nominations. They have to pick from the nominations. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the seven that they pick from those nominations, that seven will become the citywide uh, Commission on Public Safety and Accountability. Uh, now, we already have an interim commission that the mayor picked uh, all based on our input. You know, we, we, uh, we, 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 uh, we propose uh, people and, 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 and she picked from our proposals. Uh, so this is, this is different than the past where the mayor could reject all hmm. of the nominations. That can't happen in this situation here. Now, is that, is, is that, is that a perfect situation? No. Uh, what we want to have ultimately is a situation where the whole entire commission for public health, for public safety is elected and that the mayor appoints nobody that is elected by the people. And so, uh, we have a referendum presently in the city council that will create this. But right now what we're fighting for is to get what we have on the books enforced. You know, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. What we have right now is, is right, right now what we want to do is to get the district councils to nominate for the uh, 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 for, for, for the citywide commission, and then the, the mayor has to appoint that commission. It'll probably be sometime after May of next year. Right, we got to get it. mayoral elections under our belt first, right? February twenty eighth, and then the runoff, of course, April fourth, which we all right. think will likely happen. We have to to consolidate the victories that we've achieved so far. That's right. And get this into place and then build on it. Um, So you have um, some materials, I think you mentioned to me earlier, about the candidates that you have trained through CARPER. How can the public access that information to know what candidates have um, been aligned with your work? Well, you can go to our, our, our website, uh, and it's two websites, really. Uh, uh, the, the, the website of the, co- of, the, of the broad coalition that we are part of is uh, Empowering Communities for Public Safety, ECPS, ChicagoECPS.com, ChicagoECPS.com. Okay. Okay. And then you can also, as you referred to earlier, they can also go to our website, uh, you know, cwrpr.org, and on our website we will have a list of the candidates. Great, great. Um, I think we all want to see that. But we will have it up. Okay, great. We'll put a little pressure on you to get it up there uh, sooner yeah. than later, but. Don't feel the pressure. We all have a little bit of time. But when we come back from our holidays, we're going to be heavily focused on these elections. Uh, uh, I'm going to do all that is within my power as educational director of the Chicago Alliance to see to it that it's up there before the, before we get, we get to January. 
Okay, I think that's fair timing, and uh, you've done so much work. I want to thank you for all you've done in the community, as well as uh, for joining us in this half hour. We've been talking with Frank Chapman, the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Carper.org is where you would find out more about their work in that list of candidates for the Chicago Police Districts. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll be back to talk about more work that is important in our communities with uh, new guests who are working uh, with folks who have been recently incarcerated and uh, helping them reenter and create new jobs for them and help them with their families, especially over the holidays, but year-round. This is Marge Halper, and I'm here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. Good afternoon. We have had uh, a, a long and winding conversation this afternoon covering everything from our January 6th committee's uh, announcements and referrals uh, earlier this afternoon to the Chicago Police District elections, and now uh, we're going to talk with a few guests who are working in neighborhoods where it is not so easy to have a holiday celebration, where people um, need support and resources in order to thrive and succeed and, and uh, support their families. Uh, we have two guests who have done so much to help these neighbors in our communities around the city. Uh, first of all, uh, doc, uh, sister, why do I look at your abbreviation and think doctor? I, I'd give you a doctorate if I had a choice. <laughs> sister Donna Liette of Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, um, who does so much in the back of the yards community. And we also have Joby Cates, the executive director and founder of Restore Justice, who works with recently incarcerated or still incarcerated folks uh, to help with re-entry. Um, and I think it's important to think about these neighbors at this time of year and any time of year who really uh, need our help and support and need more services from organizations like these uh, in order to um, thrive and s succeed in their communities. Uh, Sister Donna, I have visited you many times in Back of the Yards neighborhood, and every time I come, you have expanded the empire, let's say, of buildings <laughs> and resources uh, that you have in the Back of the Yards. Um, you have a center for moms. You have work that you do with boys. You have a new building on May Street, a new community center. Tell us about the work that you do and why you have decided to take on buildings in the neighborhood and how they work. Okay. Hi, Marge and Joby. It's so nice to be with, all, with both of you. And I hope I'm on speakerphone. Does this work, Marge, or should I turn the speakerphone off? Uh, I think we can hear you. If Paul tells me we need you directly on the phone, uh, I'll let you know. Okay. All right. Anyway, yes, I am Sister Donna, and I work at the Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation. We've been around in the back of the yards and areas for 20 years, and I have been a part of it, uh, very privileged, for the last 13 years. And so we began in the old school building of St. John of God and mostly worked with uh, young men uh, who were either um, 
coming out of juvenile detention center or hopefully trying to prevent them from going to juvenile detention center. So the work began mostly with young men and trying to give them a safe place to grow and prosper. So when I came 13 years ago, I had worked uh, a lot in Dayton, Ohio with women. And so I asked Father Kelly, where are the women? And so um, eventually we began to grow and work out into the community. And these young men, we met their mothers and we gathered the mothers. And so eventually we said, we need a home for them. So we were lucky to be able to purchase a home on Troop, really very close, right on the campus area. Um, and it is not a residential home, but it is a home or a building, a house, uh, where our staff, five of us, can work and meet with the women one-on-one and provide services. Then very, uh, not too long after that, we were able to purchase the next house, uh, well, three houses down on the same street because of a wonderful donor. And uh, we are now house, uh, housing five women there who have been incarcerated for long periods of time and offering them housing and programming. And then we were able to purchase a house on Peoria and we are uh, housing there two families and their mothers are working on careers. And then we also have res- uh, hospitality housing for men, um, one on 51st Street and one further down on Troop. And so those are also for returning citizens, male returning citizens. And so it's all just wonderful. We're a community of men and women trying to restore our lives and restore the community in which we live. Then just recently, one of the most exciting things for me is that we have purchased an old uh, building on Bay Street that was once a liquor and grocery store, and we have transformed it into a beautiful community healing center. It just opened a month ago, and so many things have happened already for families, for the community, for the young, for the old and uh, we are very excited about that. So that's uh, maybe a long story, Marge, but that's how we've been growing in the last 20 years. It's a lot of work, so I don't uh, think we can be surprised that it takes a few minutes to tell us about it. One of the things that you told me about the May Street building that really stuck in my mind is that uh, this is a block where folks don't tend to come out on the street. It's not safe to be out on the street. I know one day that I visited you, uh, you had told me the day before, uh, a young woman was shot in the alley across the street. People might remember Mm -hmm. she was pregnant. It was a big news story. But this happens in this uh, community all the time. And you're creating safe spaces. How do you think that'll work on May May Street, where people are justifiably afraid to come out? Well, I, I think it's going to work great because I've been here cleaning and, and you know, kind of um, creating this sacred and safe space and decorating and providing furniture, et cetera, with the help of many people. And every day somebody stops by and says, what's happening here? Are you going to be selling liquor? I said, I don't think so. We're going to be selling love. We're not even selling it. We're giving it. And uh, so people just stop in and say they're, they're curious. But one of the men I know came in the other day and he said, I said, well, we're just going to offer time for healing for people to sit down and pour out their suffering and their pain and their concerns. And he said, oh, when does that start? He said, I have so many things I need to talk out and get out. 
and this is happening almost every day. Uh, someone from the community stops by and says, so what we hope to do, maybe more in the summer, early spring, we want to invite block by block and go around and pass out flyers and say, come and have something to eat with us. And, and we want to welcome you into our new healing center. And so we want to go from Elizabeth to May to Aberdeen to Morgan and invite block by block the community to come in and say, this is your community of healing. And not only, we're just providing the space. I believe that like our shirts say, together we heal. And so I think as a community together, we will help people to talk to their neighbors, to tell them about, you know, what, what are my concerns? What have I lost? What do I hope for? And beginning to build a beloved community here in back of the yard. It's, it's amazing, I think, to be rooted in the community like that, committed to the community, makes such a difference. Our uh, second guest for this hour, Joby Cates, with the uh, organization Restore Justice. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that you work less in a geographic community, Joby, and more uh, with uh, across communities with people who have shared uh, challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of Restore Justice? Sure. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. And I, um, I'm really grateful for your invitation to join a conversation today. Any conversation with Sister Donna is going to be a great conversation. So I'm just really grateful to be here. Um, Restore Justice is actually a statewide policy advocacy organization. We don't provide direct service in the way that the folks at Precious Blood do. I, I think because of what Sister Donna just shared, I think the easiest way to explain what we do is we're trying to change the laws that tear people out of community for life or what amounts to life, that compound the suffering from, for example, a violent gun crime, compound that suffering by sending multiple people to prison for what amounts to life with no opportunity for rehabilitation, for parole, and for, for being reunited with their families. So we, we actually, in, in, in our world, I would say our work is done when, when every community member in back of the yard in West Englewood who wants to be part of Precious Blood is home to do so. And I don't know that you can fully heal when such a large number of the people who have been suffering from violence in the community are shackled and put on a bus and sent to Southern Illinois or Western Illinois for life. Well, I know you had a big role in the Safety Act, um, helping eliminate cash bail or reduce cash bail because it doesn't totally eliminate it. Judges will have discretion, right? Um, and that's, uh, that's so, correct, yeah. right. And uh, we aren't, we aren't the cash bail with... people. I want to be. Oops. Yeah. Oh, 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 I, no. Just so that I. Oh, well, we worked on the Safety Act very um, uh, closely, but on a different part of it. We we don't um, tend to work on things a lot of other folks work on. So there are some really fantastic organizations working on pretrial fairness and money bond, and for example, the. Um, the Illinois Network for Pretrial Fairness, um, the People's Lobby, uh, the Chicago um, uh, Bond Fund, Community Bond Fund. We worked on the felony murder reform. Our sort of niche in this space is um, where people are 
serving life or de facto life sentences for things they did when they were young. And so where I think we overlap with Precious Blood, in fact, very literally overlap with Precious Blood, is that in Sister Donna's community, some of the most stellar workers and providers of that love in in the community are, are nuns like Sister Donna, people of the church. But some of the other strongest pillars in that community and the most um, sort of effective youth workers and interveners, interrupters, interveners, I think I just made that up, interrupters mm-hmm. are men, mostly men at this point, and some women who have served long prison sentences themselves for violent offenses in their youth. Because there is no one who is more qualified to work with youth on these issues than people who have lived through it and who've gone totally through agree. the of, of some of some of the worst of the consequences. Whoop, whoop. Thanks, thanks, Sister Donna. <laughs> we we actually um, you know, in, in terms of, for example, um, the housing program that Sister Donna um, is working on, some of the men who live in that housing or who have come into that housing or people who served long sentences who wanted to work in policy and advocacy work like we do. So what we do, we don't provide reentry services, but we hire um, a very um, kind of a small but mighty number of people who've served more than 20 years in prison for things they did, particularly when they were young. And we train them to become advocates in our space, in our criminal legal reform um, arena. And we do this because in as much as people who've served these long sentences and who've done had these experiences are the most qualified to do the kind of work that Precious Blood does. The ones who, you know, like everybody's different. All people are different people, as Ted Lasso says. Some Mm -hmm. people are great at working with youth. Other people are really great lobbyists or they're really great communications people or they're really great artists or they're really great organizers. And we hire the policy people and the organizers, the people who have potential to really help lead this work far into the future. So we actually have, as an apprentice right now, one of the men who's living in the housing from Precious Blood who was released from prison after more than 20 years um, within the past year. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you also help find other pathways to employment elsewhere? No, because we're not a reentry program. I can't say it strongly enough. Um, there okay. are wonderful reentry programs. There, I'm sorry. I, I, it's, it, we work really, really closely with a small number of people who've served life or de facto life sentences in a way that's less like a program and more like a leadership opportunity or a partnership. Um, I, I don't have the resources or the expertise to do the kind of reentry work you're discussing. But, um, you know, Precious Blood's our closest partner. So as soon as we know somebody we know who's in prison who's been doing a long sentence is coming home if they don't have a place to live the first thing we're doing is going to precious blood if they're looking to get involved in youth mentoring the first place we go is precious blood um for our work we also partner with groups like um the uptown people's law center who helps prisoners with lawsuits we work with groups that um, like the Safer Foundation and the John Howard Association and others who help people with different aspects of their reentry. There's a wonderful group for people reentering outside of Cook County called um, TASC, 
there are a number of wonderful ranchery programs in Lake County, Legacy um, Ranchery Foundation in Lake County is one of the groups we work with there. If, so if we know someone who's coming home and we know they need help, we find a way to get them in touch with the right people in the right place. Well, you're you're right about Precious Blood being a strong partner, um, the providing housing and jobs and other issues for reentry. But I see now um, how the two organizations intersect. You work on advocacy um, to improve conditions and opportunities, um, and they work at the community level, both for reentry and uh, for those who help those uh, who might otherwise end up in prison to help them find a different path for themselves. Um, it's a great partnership. makes a lot of sense. Um, Sister Donna, uh, tell us a little more about the reentry work that you do. Uh, well, I don't do a lot of that, but um, it's wonderful what Jody is saying. And, um, you know, we have 10 of the returning citizens who are employed at PBMR. And like Joby said, I just had to jump in at that time because they are just the best. And they are so qualified, you know, to work with our young men because they were there at one time when they were young. And they can tell them, you know, it's not a pretty thing, you know, if, uh, if you go the path that we went and that we regret what we did. But, uh, you know, we're here now to help you not do the same. So it's wonderful. And they are just great. And uh, two of the men... Uh, returning citizens have already purchased homes in the community so that they can not only work in the community but actually live in the community and that means so much to our community and to our youth and to our families um so uh you know what we do is provide housing we provide support and we provide employment so i think those are the ways that father kelly is the one who does so much you know to really provide um the best for them but we do now have five women who have been served time uh, in incarceration and offering them housing and programs. So we're really excited about that. They're right on the same block on Creek. And uh, I, one of our staff persons, Teresa, uh, works uh, intensely with them, provide services and hope. It's a, it's a comprehensive program. Both of you offer really comp- comprehensive programs. And, Sister Don, really I know another to, thing. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to say, you know, we really want a continuum of care. You know, we want to have them come and then be housed, have a good program, make goals, save money, have jobs, and reunite with family. A lot of re- restoring of relationships is important. You know, our whole premises upon which we work is relationship building, restoring relationships, offering hope and healing. Um, So, yeah, and then, you know, the next step is housing, and that is the biggest problem that we have right now is, like, after they go so far, then, you know, in their exit plan, where can they find affordable, safe housing? That is really our big problem right now. So, yeah. But your question, I'm not sure I kind of broke in there. I'm sorry, uh, Marge. No, no, it's all right. Um, I I was going to say, when you think about um, you work not only with folks who are returning to the community, but the work Father Kelly does with young men and the work that the organization does with boys um, to try and give them outlets. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Well, um, I don't do a lot of that anymore, but uh, like I said, we have these returning citizens or, uh, or, you know, what we call credible messengers who do work. They're mentoring them. They're uh, caseworkers. They go to court with them. They go, um, they, we accompany. That's really one of our big goals. Mm-hmm. Too. We don't just say, oh, you can go there and get this job. You can do it. No, we accompany them and take them and not to just treat them as if they don't know you know, are incapable, but just to have that support. Because people need to be accompanied. Sometimes they don't know, you know, um, some of the ropes that they have to go through. And so the accompaniment is really important. Just being with them on the journey is so important. It's hard to navigate. I want to say, hear, hear to that. Yeah, I have to navigate. say, hear to that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Navigate uh, yeah. We talked well, like a little bit, Donna, before about young boys and giving them outlets. Um, maybe you do that in the center with the moms. I wasn't clear about where where that might be, but um, giving young boys, before they end up um, in the justice system, giving them outlets. We have, we have very young, uh, you know, and uh, some of our mentors, male and female mentors, you know, take them all different kind of places to the city and, and expose them to things that maybe they wouldn't have the opportunity to otherwise. And so um, just giving them, you know, hope and giving them joy and fun. Like uh, one of our staff, one of our returning citizens actually took some of the youth um, to a museum, I guess, and he put it out on Facebook or on Zootney or whatever. They were out dancing and just having the best time. And sometimes our youth don't really have that opportunity to just have a good time and just laugh and have fun together. And that builds relationship, that builds community, that, that builds care for one another. And, um, and that's really accompanying them to places where otherwise they may not be able to go. So, and then we also provide circles. We're, you know, we're very much a restorative justice hub. And so we believe very much in the circle process of restoring relationships and bringing about reconciliation. So uh, weekly, the young men, uh, different ages, the younger, then the older ones, sit in circles with mentors, with Father Kelly, with, uh, you know, some adult leadership, but also it's their circle where they set up their guidelines, they set up their values, they talk about values, they talk about their hurts, they talk about, you know, all of those, all of our boys have seen someone shot or they've been shot or their best friends have been killed, and, you know, they live in this fear of, am I next? And so to sit in circle and talk about that, because I have a saying that's so strong to me right now, it's that um, violence happens because they don't know what to do with their suffering. And that's Palmer, uh, Palmer Parker says that. Mm-hmm. And it's so true in this neighborhood, in this community, and probably very many other places, but we feel it here where there's violence because they don't know how to talk about or be or have an opportunity or space to talk about their suffering. So we do that also with the mothers. Just Saturday, I had 30 mothers here who had either lost their children to gun violence or to incarceration. Most of them had lost one or two children to gun violence. And so they sat in a circle and they talked about what it's like at Christmas to not have that son or daughter at the table anymore. How painful that is. And especially when you've lost two sons or two daughters or a son and daughter. 
and and also a son or daughter incarcerated, they've also lost. They're not at the table either. And so they talked about that pain, but they also, one of the mothers said, even when she goes to work, they see a change in her. They say, I see such a change in you. Why is that? And she said, because I go to Precious Blood and I sit in circle with other mothers who have also lost their children. And that helps me to heal and it helps me better at my job. It's a very special kind of support group that you offer there. There aren't a lot of places mm-hmm. to go for that, that's for sure. And we're going to take you, a break. Oh, I'm, mm-hmm. Go ahead, Toby. Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're already going to take I'm sorry. We're going to take right. a break. I'll, I'll just chime yeah, in. We after. are, but hold your idea and we'll come back to you after this break. If you want to join the discussion of the work that's being done uh, in our community, 773-763-9278 or 763-WCPT are our numbers. Is our number. It's all the same number, whether you use letters or numbers. I'm Marge Halperin here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. And we're talking this hour with Sister Donna Liette of the Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation. If you'd like to know more about the community services they offer or even contribute to the work they do, pbmr.org is their website. And Joby Cates, the executive director and founder of Restore Justice, restorejustice.org, where you can also provide support there. Joby, you were about to add a point uh, about the community work we were discussing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Sister Donna just said really beautifully what it means to heal suffering and that it requires the people who've been involved to have a place to go, and but it also requires the people involved <laughs> to be there. And I know there there is so much um, suffering in any violent incident, um, but I want to note that if it were up to the state of Illinois, the men who are working at Restore Justice and working at Precious Blood now, facilitating healing circles and mentoring youth and providing this kind of loving accompaniment to people who are going through difficult times, if it were up to the state of Illinois, those men would still be in prison today, right now. They would not have received an opportunity to come home and do this work. And in fact, the state continues um, in many parts of the state and in state law to disproportionately um, and really um, in a way that doesn't align with any kind of um, standards around uh, community safety, keep people in prison far, far too long. Our sentencing statutes are out of whack. And so we end up in a situation where you have communities, five or six communities in the city in particular, where a really significant percentage of people have been shipped away for life. And nobody gets to see them grow up and grow out of violence. Nobody gets to see them become good men. Nobody gets to see them, you know, helping each other and learning and growing um, and feeling remorse and wanting to make amends. Nobody gets to see that because they're trapped. Uh, in a system that does not have um, the legal capacity to give people a review to see if they're rehabilitated and can come home. 
You've mentioned a few times, Joby, particular concern uh, about people who are convicted as young men and women, but I, I know we're talking mostly about men in this situation, um, proportionally yeah. anyway, um, and convicted at a young age and end up serving life under the, the terms that you just described, um, yeah. forming a very different kind of community which is not supportive or safe most of the time. What what changes would are you uh, advocating for uh, that would give these young men a second chance as they get to be adults? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just just to set the table a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's predominantly men. Ninety five percent of the people who are incarcerated in Illinois are men. Ninety between ninety four and ninety six percent over the years is usually, you know, between four and six percent are female. Um, One of the things that's really interesting is people talked a lot about the prison population going down during COVID, and it did in almost every category. But the one category where it actually went up was in people under the age of 25 doing 40 or more year sentences. So think about that for a second. 40 or more years for something you did before you turned 25, before your car insurance rates (laughs) dropped. (laughs) You know, right? Yeah, so, right. And really, it gets even worse. The the, the, the number is even more um, sort of egregious for, for people under 21 and then, again, even worse under 18. So we, in Illinois, what would we change? We have a really bizarre um, and unusual situation in the state of Illinois. Most other states have a parole for release system. Um, Illinois does not. We got rid of it in 1978, whole hog. And then... We doubled down on on this sort of um, mercilessness uh, in 1995 and then more in 1998 when we passed uh, so-called truth and sentencing, which is a, um, a set of laws that were really encouraged around the country at the time by um, um, moderate moderates in both parties, really, um, who, who believed that longer sentences and, and telling sort of telling victims and, and victim family members, this is what the perpetrator's sentence is going to be forever and ever. It'll never change. Um, they're going away for 60 years. You're never going to have to worry about them again. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is um, those types of laws created a trick box because when you when you have really long sentences to begin with, like we do in Illinois, um, we have some of the most draconian sentences in the, in the nation. And then you take away both potential avenues for release, one being um, a parole for release, you know, go to see the prison review board, they tell you you're either, you you need more time or you can come home. The other mechanism is what's called good time. It's earned release. And you you hear people talk about Mm -hmm. um, earning time off their sentence by good behavior. And we all watch TV, we all watch Law and Order, and and we think we know that, that that's the same everywhere. And it's not true in Illinois. We do not have good time for people whose sentences are really extreme. In other words, if you commit a serious offense or you're convicted of a serious offense, you're going to do that time. You're going to do every day of it, no matter what. And the U.S. Supreme Court has had to intervene a number of times on really, really, really acutely unfair cases. Um, And that's how some of these men are at precious blood right now because the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, Illinois, you can't do that to human beings in our country. And Illinois had to say, okay, we'll let this one out. We'll let that one out. 
And it's what we're trying to do is pry the door open. Yes, it is very surprising. Yeah, yeah, because we think of ourselves, and we've discussed that certainly in the context of Trump and the MAGA Republican things, in election time, we think of ourselves as a progressive oasis in the Midwest in so many ways. But this, I think, is the legacy of the zero-tolerance sentencing that came out of the Jim Thompson mm-hmm. era. Am I right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I really, if you, yeah, if you want to broaden it out, it was really a national movement in the late 70s around something called determinate sentencing, and Illinois fell for that one. And mm-hmm. most states didn't, didn't go whole hog the way we did, um, and they're glad they didn't. <laughs> um, yeah. We then, as I said, doubled down with truth and sentencing in the 90s, and that was part of that, that sort of three strikes in your out mentality, the super predator a myth that w- was being sort of um, promulgated in the media and in politics at the time. And it, it's roundly been rejected. All of that sort of, the, the, all of the research and the thinking of that time that led to those laws has been debunked. It's been proven wrong. And Illinois clings on because we, um, I think, have historically just been afraid. I think because of the violence, because of news coverage of violence, um, that creates, I think, really some misunderstandings about what the nature of community violence really is. And so people think, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. And if there is a, a real mercilessness about it. Um, if we thought this would happen to our own children, we would not be voting yes on laws like this. If we thought this could happen to our own beloved, we would not be part of these kinds of systems. Um, but we, we've as a society, managed to carve out people for whom we do not have to have compassion. And we believe that's wrong. We believe compassion doesn't have a door. It doesn't have a fence. Everybody can change. Everybody can grow and become something more than they were. This is a tough environment to make the case that you're making, given the MAGA Republican law and order movement you know, and what we saw in in this last election cycle, somebody like Mandela Barnes was really hurt by that uh, relentless ads that uh, Senator Johnson ran against him about crime and defund the police and all that. Um, that's done some harm to the movement for sure. Um, but whatever phrases you pick, uh, no doubt Republicans will find a way to turn them. Um, but how do you break through uh, with this general feeling that there's a rise in crime and the streets are dangerous and dangerous people, uh, we don't want them in our neighborhoods. The Republicans have really fueled this fire, haven't they? Yeah. Well, I love that when I was waiting to come on this program, I heard the tagline of this uh, radio station, I think it was Facts Matter or Where Facts Matter. Um, We Mm -hmm. break through all of the hysteria around violence with um, with reality. I mean, the truth is, I, I look at some of the men that Sister Donna works with, and, and Sister Donna, there's a young man we both know really well who um, mm-hmm. has been involved both at Restore Justice and at Precious Blood, who is in his late 40s. He is, um, not only does he have several bullet holes through his body, he was convicted of a double homicide when he was 16 years old. And he was sentenced to life. He was sentenced to die in prison with no chance of parole. The U.S. Supreme Court said you can't give a 16-year-old a mandatory life sentence, but he got to come home. 
Um, his son was impacted by gun violence. He's obviously both been on both sides. And I think one of the myths that um, allows Republicans, not just Republicans, but a lot of folks in our community to, to believe that this is about bad people or dangerous people. One of those myths is that there's such a thing as a victim and a perpetrator. And I have dozens, and Sister Donna has hundreds, maybe thousands of people in her life who have been both. And in fact, if I look at my own life, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I've been sober for a really long time by the grace of God and, um, and my recovery program, but I am also a person who has done harm to others. But I'm also a person who has helped a lot of people. I am both of those things. I'm a human being. I have a life. Why can't Brad or Nelson have a life? Why can't Wendell or James have the same kind of complexity in their life? Well, I would argue because it's more convenient for a lot of folks to say, and, and I'll be, let's call out, you know, what it is, the racism in our, in our communities and in our country to say, you know, young black men are scary uh, and dangerous. There's a mm-hmm. presumption, as Brian Stevenson would say, there's a presumption of dangerousness. And that has its roots in slavery. It has its roots in Jim Crow. Is There's a presumption of dangerousness. And I will tell you, these men that I know and that Sister Donna knows are not dangerous. There's nothing about them that is any more dangerous than you or I inherently. They're human beings who are living in situations where violence is absolutely the norm and where their own trauma witnessing violence witnessing their fathers get shipped off to prison with their uncles their cousins growing up with that level of instability and fear it takes a toll and we expect every single person to transcend that and not participate when maybe there aren't any jobs maybe there isn't a way to get involved for everybody. So what Precious Blood does is it it transcends this sort of foolish debate that we have in the public policy spaces about violence because it's actually doing the real work of building a community that can work together and solve problems without resorting to violence. And I believe they could do it. I, I've never seen anything in 30 years of working in nonprofits around the city of Chicago and government. I have never seen a group of people who have so deeply rooted themselves in this notion that only love can heal suffering. This is bold work in a community that is very challenging. I want to continue the discussion, but we're due for a short break. If you want to call in and join the conversation, 773-763-9278. Marge Halperin here for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan from Indivisible Chicago, Democratic strategist Marge Halperin. And we're talking about work in communities that are hard to work in, um, where there, where the need is very great. Uh, two of the most impressive community people I know are our guests today. We've been hearing from Joby Cates director and founder of Restore Justice, and Sister Donna Liette from Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation. Sister Donna, um, what Joby was just describing um, is, is a level of compassion and creating community in places 
where it's challenging to work. Um, and you and your colleagues at Precious Blood have been very successful in doing this. Um, but it's uh, it, you talked about the pain and the trauma that people, whether they're coming back from incarceration or trying to invo- avoid that path, how do you address individual trauma? Well, that's a, <laughs> a difficult question, but I also want to just thank Joby for uh, saying such a beautiful thing about Precious Blood Ministry that, you know, we really work toward building relationships and restoring uh, that sense of love in the community so we can be a beloved community, just making every person feel so special and so uh, welcomed. You know, we have three strong statements that we talk about, or three values, actually, of radical hospitality, that everyone, it doesn't matter if you served 40 years in prison or if you were just coming into PBMR at 10 years old for the first time, or we had a little three-year-old who was one of our donors I mean, and her family, it doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome into our community, and we try to interact with those because Brian Stevenson, as Joby quoted um, another phrase from him, but one of them is, is being proximate, bringing people together that are diverse and helping people to understand that these men or women who have been incarcerated maybe did do some real harm in the community. Who of us has not done harm? And yet maybe not quite as severe as some, but we still cause harm. And some of the greatest harm is just hate and, and marginalizing people, putting people aside because maybe they're a different color or they have a different background or a different education level. But everybody is welcome. They're radically hospi- hospitable. And then the whole sense of healing. You know, our community is broken, and so is the justice system. I really admire Joby and all the people that work with her because we say it's a lot easier to work with individuals than with the systems. Father Kelly always says it's the systems that really is causing the harm, basically. And so people are harmed because we have unjust systems. Even our education system is is often not providing for all people equally. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I hope I'm kind of answering the question, but it's, you know, our hope, our healing, our opportunity for people to come together and get to know each other. It's, a lot of people dislike each other or have, um, you know, con- think about people differently because they never had a conversation with them. And all of a sudden they're sitting down and talking with somebody over coffee and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, last year I was thinking you had... You know, I would never want to talk to you. And yet, when you bring people together and have conversations, they begin to realize, well, we're not that different. It doesn't matter if we have different color skin or if we have different color, different backgrounds. You know, there's so much alike in us. We had a, a ritual around, you know, uh, the violence and the pain that comes from that. And everybody carried up a cross and named the people who were killed in their life. And one young woman, only 14, maybe 16, I don't know, she carried up her cross and she had name after name after name of people who had been killed by gun violence. So talking about trauma, how do we address it? By simply doing rituals, by doing circles, by letting people have conversations and talk about, because like I said, violence happens because people don't know what to do with this trauma, with this suffering. 
And so we provide spaces, we provide circles, we provide coffee breaks where people can come and talk about the trauma that they have experienced. When our boys have seen their best friend shot, bleeding to death in the alley, think of the trauma that that is. Think of the trauma a mother goes through when she has a son shot but paralyzed. The second son shot has a permanent colostomy. Uh, Another son can't stand the sight of all this pain and commits suicide. Think of the trauma that that mother goes through and if she doesn't have a space where she can talk about that, be honest about that, and cry about that. And we grieve. I say to the moms, we grieve because we love. And when we grieve together, we love together. And connections are made, relationships are built, and a beloved community is possible. Brian Stevenson says we have to be proximate. We have to change these narratives and these stories about men and women coming out of prison as awful people. We have to we have to do hard stuff. This is hard. And yet we never give up hope. Our twentieth anniversary totally talked about let's stay connected to hope. And when we love and when we have compassion for every single person, a beloved community can be built. It's hard to imagine overcoming such extensive trauma when you also live without a quality education, without access to fair wages and good-paying jobs and health care, mental health care and otherwise, right? I would jump in, honestly. I I will... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just said in affordable housing, it's it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Joby. I'm sorry. I think the thing that I would I want to leave people, you know, I know we're closing up soon. I want to leave people with mm-hmm. something really incredible. This is a gift that was given to me. People ask me this all the time. Joby, why do you do this? It's awful. I mean, it is hard. And let me tell you something. Human beings, no matter what you do to us, we are going to love. We are going to heal. We are going to find a way to do good the people who I've met who've come home from prison after 20, 30, 35 years, you would think they would be full of rage. You'd think they would be damaged forever. They're some of the most enlightened, self-aware, kind, uh, you know, loving, stable people I know and loving. And, and honestly, you know, they've dealt with themselves. And when they come into our community, they make it better. They make it stronger. So I, I try not to think of it as, oh, this is so hard. I'm never going to, you know, this trauma. Yeah, there are problems. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's scary and it can be really hard sometimes. But the benefits and the joys and the outweigh it, they outweigh the fear. Well, that is a great place to end the conversation. Such inspiration and a good time in the holiday season, but always to think about our neighbors who struggle and can use our help and support. Uh, we're talking with Sister Donna Liette from Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, pbmr.org. Joby Cates, Executive Director and Founder of Restore Justice, restorejustice.org. I'm Marge Halper, and you can find me at March Halpern on Twitter and elsewhere and through IndivisibleChicago.com. Thank you for the conversation. It's been a pleasure this afternoon. And uh, we sign off for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive.